As we're fond of saying on this podcast, everything is connected. And the one place on Earth where this plays out more than any other is the Sahel region of Africa. In 2011, Nicolas Sarkozy and David Cameron strode into Benghazi like a pair of middle-aged pop stars, celebrating the defeat of their enemy, Muammar Gaddafi. Now, just a decade later, it's a region in ruins on Europe's doorstep. We see countries in economic collapse as a result of the climate crisis, with extremist groups from Al-Qaeda to Islamic State to Boko Haram stepping in to take advantage of the power vacuum. It's just one step away from famine, and he warned that the war in Ukraine is now adding a frightening new dimension to this picture of global hunger. And the fear, if not the reality, of dislocated populations emigrating to Europe is driving far-right politics in this continent. This is crisis in the Sahel. This is intense. It's really in Mali. You have this EU attempt to externalize the border system deep into the Sahel. Why are we still trying to shape governance in Africa? I'm Arthur Snell. I was a diplomat in some of the most troubled places on planet Earth. And now I'm here to investigate the threats of today and warn you about the dangers of tomorrow. This is Doomsday Watch. First off, what is the Sahel? It's the band of African countries bordering the southern fringes of the Sahara Desert, from Senegal and Mauritania on the Atlantic coast to Eritrea and Sudan on the Red Sea. These lands have long been at risk from drought, desertification and famine. But in the past 10 years, these factors have been exacerbated by violent conflict and extreme climate change, leading to a governance crisis. The countries of the Sahel are rapidly becoming failed states. It's a region on Europe's borders in deep crisis, which most people know nothing about. I'm Dr. Niagale Bagayuko. Presently, I am chairing the African Security Sector Network. What is important to say is first that, of course, uh, Sahel is one of the poorest regions in the world. But I think it would lead to a misunderstanding if uh, the stress was not put on the governance issues, which are really at the core of uh, the, the current uh, crisis. Of course, Sahel countries are poor, but you do have lots of other poor countries uh, both on the African continent itself, as well as in other parts of the world, uh, which have not come into such a major crisis. Uh, second, I think it is also important to mention that the security crisis has terrible uh, aftermath, a particular on the refugees. For instance, today you have almost 2 million refugees in Burkina Faso, whilst four years ago, you only had around uh, 30,000. Climate change is making huge areas of these countries uninhabitable. 
In the vast majority of cases, people are being displaced internally, seeking new lives away from their traditional homes. But there is also the spectre of refugees coming north to Europe. At a time when desperate refugees risking drowning in small boats in the English Channel can be mischaracterised as an invasion, the fear of migration has become a potent political force motivating far-right politics in Britain, France, Italy and Sweden, just to take a few examples. This is no longer a fringe movement. It has entered government, has large parliamentary representation and is shaping political and media narratives. The Radical right is an established political actor now in basically every European country. That's Tarek Abu Shadi, associate professor in European Union and comparative European politics at Oxford University. I spoke to him about the far right phenomenon and particularly how the mainstream media has unwittingly become a huge enabler of its progress, giving it legitimacy. We have seen these record elections for many of these parties. Vox in Spain is another example, Chega in Portugal. So many countries that hadn't seen a successful radical right party have now seen elections with these parties, making it into parliament. And that is something that's established everywhere. And the next question is, where can they make it into government, right? This is kind of the, the next step where they could have direct, uh, direct impact. Um, and so these parties have become more established. But what we also can see that in many countries, there is a limit to where these parties can directly go. I mean, I think a classic case study of this is Nigel Farage, who, uh, as a guest on Question Time, you know, the popular politics show on BBC, I think has appeared more than any other guest ever. And yet uh, he's, he just happens to be a member of the European or was a member of the European Parliament, whereas you could find, say, a green UK MEP who's never appeared or, or you know, a Tory or Labour or whatever. Yes, there's one example, I guess Donald Trump would be another example right. where you can see that the media has massively contributed to making someone successful and visible and then signals to the audience that this is an equally important and, and an equally representative opinion than the other guests on the show. These radical right populist actors, they provide very simple solutions that are not actually policy solutions, but they don't care. They lie a lot. And we all realize um, it's very difficult to fight against lies in the media. The important part here is the indirect influence that radical right parties um, or far right parties in general can have on other actors. So a seat or a couple of seats in the European Parliament, of course, don't give these parties direct influence over politics in, in their home country. But what it did, especially in the UK, it scared the Tories, right? The Tories noticed 
for thought, we have to do something, we have to react. And this is something that happened in many countries. When the radical right is successful, other parties shift their position on immigration especially, also European integration very often. And so you have elite actors adjusting to the radical right. That's of course also the media, huge uh, attention to, um, to these parties and their issues. Germany in 2017 is a good example where all the media, also international media, was really focused on this new rising AFD radical right challenger and on their topics, immigration, refugees, crime, law and order. And this is the environment in which these parties can thrive. The far right still gets its fair share of setbacks. Suella Braverman in the UK isn't by any means expected to remain in charge of the country's national security for very long, as she is basically incompetent. Italy's Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni has to work with the EU if she wants to get its money, which forces her to tone down her most virulent rhetoric. And in France, we still seem to be a long way from the day that country elects a far-right president, as the US did in 2016. But with all that having been said, these parties are now a significant part of the landscape of modern Western democracy. But what has all this got to do with the Sahel? In the Sahel, 7.7 million children under the age of five are expected to suffer from malnutrition. 1.8 million are severely malnourished. And if aid operations are not scaled up, this number could reach 2.4 million by the end of this year. It's important to be clear on some facts. As with most refugee stories, the biggest numbers are of internally displaced people and those that find themselves in neighbouring countries. But it's the narrative that far-right politicians are able to use, more than the actual facts, of Europe surrounded by failed and failing states overrun by terrorists. So what's the reality now, in 2022, in the Sahel region, and how are those inhabitants affected by the breakdown in security? And, in a world where everything is connected, how does Russia fit into all of this? Let's hear from Ivan Gishawa, an expert on international conflict based at the University of Kent. So it's been nine years of French military presence in Mali. The jihadists are very much active and successful. They occupy vast territories in central Mali, uh, but they are not ruling, but they're using it as a sort of safe haven for their activities. Jihadists are now also very much present and militarily active in Burkina Faso, western Niger, eastern Mali, in northern Côte d'Ivoire, in northern Togo, and in northern Benin. Since around 2020, mercenaries from the Russian firm Wagner, which operates as a proxy force for the Russian government, have been active in the Sahel, in the Central African Republic, in Mali, and possibly in Burkina Faso and Nigeria. This comes as troops from Western countries, led by France, have departed with a sense of increasing failure and frustration. Wagner's offering has two clear advantages from the host government's perspective. The first is that they don't quibble about governance, corruption, lack of due process, all those tiresome things. The second is that Wagner will take the gloves off. Human rights aren't on the agenda. 
we know that they have deployed since January 2022 about 1,200 soldiers. And we know what they do. They have inflicted major losses to terrorist groups. That's um, undisputable. But as part of their operations, they have killed hundreds of civilians. And the worst episode has been the Mura episode in Central Mali, where during five days, a village has been locked by the Russian troops and the Malian troops. And the men with a beard uh, systematically killed. Uh, and the MINUSMA, which is the peacekeeping organization uh, by the UN, has never been allowed to uh, investigate these cases, even though plenty of testimonies tell the same uh, story. But there are also plenty of other episodes of violence perpetrated by the Russians as part of their counterterrorism operations against civilians. Let's think back to how this started. What is uh, very important to keep in mind is that uh, the Sahel uh, crisis broke out in uh, 2012 and uh, initially uh, it originated in the northern part of Mali with external influences coming from uh, northern Algeria and uh, from uh, Libya. After Cameron and Sarkozy's victorious stroll through Benghazi, the initial optimism that Libya would transition to a stable democracy fell into humiliation as yet another foreign intervention went badly wrong. We are your friends, but this is your country, your leadership, your plan. We stand ready to help but we want to know what it is you most want us to do. In northern Mali, after the years of the Algerian civil war, jihadists and other militants had roamed in this remote and little-governed area. The arrival of Gaddafi's former mercenaries only complicated this difficult picture. You'll remember Jason Pack, author of Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder from episode one. He explains how that Libyan dream turned to a nightmare. When the Arab Spring came along in 2011, Obama said, we need to do the opposite of what Bush did. And Cameron said, I need to do the opposite of what Blair did. They didn't want to have heavy-handed nation building in places like Libya or Syria. So in Libya, without a coordinated reconstruction effort, a vacuum was created where Russia and Turkey and others like the Emirates and Qatar were really the key players in determining Libya's political trajectory. And by not leading, the West has created a situation in which the enduring disorder begets more disorder. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. 
I think it is very difficult not to mention both Libya and, and Algeria when uh, trying to understand what happened uh, in Mali. Because the civil war in Algeria has been absolutely key because the Algerian government and uh, the Algerian military have been able to push out of uh, the, the Algerian borders the uh, jihadi combatants that have been fighting all over the 90s. And in fact, those groups found a kind of sanctuary in the northern region of the Malian territory. As we've already seen, Mali is an incredibly poor country, much of which is a vast, trackless desert. It was easy for al-Qaeda warriors displaced from Algeria to find safe havens there and to make common cause with the native Saharan peoples, the Tuareg. These Tuareg received another boost by gaining thousands of weapons looted from Libyan armories. With the fall of Gaddafi, you suddenly have... Uh, a lot of weapons that start circulating. This itself is not the cause of what has been happening in recent years, but this has been uh, what you may call an exacerbating factor in the sense that there were plenty of governance issues. And what we witnessed was a kind of alliance between rebels uh, which were trying to, to gain independence from Mali and had been uh, fighting since the independence of the country uh, in the 60s. And those groups made an alliance with some jihadi groups uh, affiliated to Al-Qaeda. So uh, the initial push was given by Tuareg separatists from northern Mali who uh, merged their activities with political activists based in Mali. And that created a separatist insurgency called at the time the National Movement for the Liberation of Azawad. Now, what complicates the picture is that they were not alone. They were not the only militants there. Since the early 2000s, at least, you had a jihadist presence that was relatively discreet, but that started growing and becoming politically influential and also very wealthy in financial terms because they were very proactive in uh, trying to persuade populations to follow them. And they also were into a hostage-taking business of Westerners that made them very, very rich. Mukhtar al-Mukhtar was a, a significant player in al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, and he was behind major terrorist attacks and indeed hostage-taking. This is where one of the most significant terrorists of the modern era steps into the picture. Some of you might have heard of Mokhtar Bel Mokhtar, an Algerian jihadist with a series of colourful nicknames, the Bin Laden of Africa, the One-Eyed, the Uncatchable, Mr Marlborough. He was so successful that he managed to get this local jihadist network officially recognised by Al-Qaeda as being part of the global franchise. Ivan tells us more of his operational history. The reason why they were jihadists in Mali in 2012 is because some jihadists rejected the amnesty program that Algeria offered to end the civil war. There was this guy, so Mokhtar ben Mokhtar, who married 
in a community not far from Timbuktu. And he started preaching, developing activities. And so that translated into a lot of uh, hostage taking and literally millions of uh, euros were um, accumulated through this uh, practice. And, and Western countries, in a way, have some responsibility for the growth of the jihadist movements because they paid very handsome ransoms. That filled the pockets of the um, jihadists who seduced local population because they were wealthy people. They were paying livelihoods twice the price uh, of the market. I mean, they had all sorts of strategies. And Mokhtar Ben Mokhtar was the leading man, the one who managed to have this jihadist cell recognized by Al-Qaeda. In fact, uh, his view of the jihad was very much a sort of anti-Westerners militancy. And um, he... Uh, carried out the attack against this gas complex in, in Amenas in Algeria in 2013, immediately after the French intervention. Uh, and then he started uh, planning all sorts of, of, of operations that were carried out against Westerners. Soldiers in units fighting further north say the Islamist fighters are well armed, and many of them very young. Remember, everything is connected. France, as the former colonial power seeing Westerners attacked, kidnapped and murdered by Mokhtar Bel Mokhtar's cell, was always likely to be dragged into this picture. And then, events in Toulouse in 2012 made this even more likely. This was Mohamed Merah's last stand. In a ferocious gun battle, the firefight lasted several minutes before a sniper's shot to the head felled the man behind a spate of killings that in a series of targeted attacks, off-duty soldiers and most shockingly children and teachers at a Jewish school were shot and killed by Mohamed Merah, an Algeria-born Frenchman who videoed his crimes and uploaded footage to the internet. He was described as a French national with an Algerian mother who had been to Afghanistan and Pakistan and was claiming to be a member of Al-Qaeda. Of course, France is a country with a large, poor, unintegrated Muslim population that feels that its identity and religion are under attack by its host state. Controversies around secularism, the role of French troops overseas in Libya and Afghanistan, and the longer tale of colonialism only complicate these issues. Think of the periodic eruptions of rioting in the banlieue, far from those beautiful bits of Paris the tourists visit. But in the aftermath of a terror attack, it's not often that such balance and nuance features in the considerations of political leaders. Faire une croix sur l'apport, le courage, la pugnacité, la persévérance qui a été celle de Jean-Marie Le Pen. Within months of the Toulouse killings, Marine Le Pen's Front National polled 18% in presidential elections, coming third behind the main candidates François Hollande and the incumbent Nicolas Sarkozy. In the second round runoff, the two mainstream candidates lurched to the right, both trying to outdo the other in courting Le Pen's supporters. So is this a simple case of terrorism precipitating far-right political success? It's a bit more complicated than that. Here's Tarek. I don't think you can say that there is a direct causal relationship between terrorist attacks and um, the success of the radical right or the far right. The Front National was well-established. 
What then established political actors can do is that they use certain political events to frame them in a way that helps their own political strategies. Um, and of course, a Islamist terrorist attack is a helpful event for the radical right and the frames that they use. French forces did not go into Mali because of what happened in Toulouse. They were invited in by the Malian government nearly a year later to help stabilise the country. But the events of Toulouse certainly contributed to the willingness to deploy troops. However, like so many similar operations, once deployed, it was hard for the French to leave. What was their mission? What would success look like? They didn't have clear answers to these questions. French forces would remain in Mali until 2022 and still maintain a presence in neighbouring countries. We're heading north. French troops on their way towards Al-Qaeda's state within a state. They're fleeing south, their town overrun by Islamists, then pounded by French bombs. We had to leave, he said. So it's been nine years of French military presence in Mali uh, that ends fairly bitterly. Now, after 2014 and until 2022, the French had this permanent military presence in Mali, would strike jihadist forces without addressing the key dynamics on the ground. Now, it's not the job of the French to substitute the state. And this is where the blame game uh, starts. But the, the overall logic, I think, applies well that um, the paradoxes and the dilemmas of state building from the outside have been um, observed in the Sahel. Nearby lie the weary, the wounded, Malian soldiers who fought hand-to-hand with the militants, and many came off worse. They have a warning about the threat that the French face. They may struggle to win. They're a tough enemy. A familiar tale, right? In series one of this podcast, we looked at the dynamics of Western small wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Here's what Frank Ledridge, a former soldier and lawyer, had to say about the events in Libya where he found himself in 2011. We also wanted to believe that the rising that took place was democratic, driven by social media, and led by very nice human rights lawyers and their acolytes. What we now know, of course, is that the rising against Gaddafi was led by jihadists, Iraq veterans, and that these jihadists set the tone for the mess that we have now. So we were led to believe our own propaganda. We did believe our own propaganda and results are there for anyone to see. Whereas you said now, oddly enough, Libya is, as it always was, divided into three. And what does that say about intervention as a whole? I think it says that if you're going to crash into a place, it behoves you at least to listen to all voices, to understand that that the realities we want to exist rarely do.
We talk a lot in these podcasts of Western-led interventions, and that usually means interventions led by the United States, often in countries that were either colonised or at some point in history invaded by the UK. But the urge to colonise and to intervene is not unique to the Anglo-Saxon world. France, facing horrific terror attacks on its own territory and an increasing sense that instability in former French colonies in Africa was contributing to that threat, took a fateful decision to intervene in Mali, where Al-Qaeda had established a stronghold. Set against this rough but targeted local administration, the French occupiers faced a familiar struggle to gain trust with limited understanding of specific local dynamics. In Mali, at the beginning, the jihadists shocked everyone with their ruthless efficiency. Here's Ivan. In May 2012, um, I remember when the separatists were kicked out of their strongholds, like everybody was just stunned by effectiveness of the jihadists and their capacity also to get rid of any competitors in northern Mali. So their rules really alone, uh, the jihadists, for uh, 10 months. Um, and this has been a major turning point. Also because during these 10 months, they made somehow the demonstration that uh, there were more than just a guerrilla movement doing some sort of hit and run operations. They had some capacity to govern. Northern Mali for about 10 months was a sort of laboratory for um, a jihadist form of governance. In a desperately poor country with weak governance, it was possible for the insurgents to gain, in some cases, a measure of local respect and support. Just as we saw in parts of Afghanistan, this was especially the case in the provision of justice. Niagale again. There is, of course, a need not to romanticize uh, the kind of uh, local governance which has been imposed by jihadi groups. Of course, uh, you do have a lot of constraints in terms of uh, freedom of movement, uh, of clothes uh, people want to wear, uh, but it is also important to keep in mind that you do have some approaches which have met uh, the needs of local population. For instance, the way in which justice has been administered, uh, which has been seen as much more in accordance with local religious faith than uh, the national justice. Also, uh, access uh, to local resources uh, such as lands or water uh, has been administered. So I think there is a mix, in fact, of, uh, of fear, uh, but also in some case of adhesion uh, to the governance which is promoted by uh, those groups. So they are an armed group. They have a logic of occupation. They want to stay. They are looking for their uh, political survival. So they know that civilians matter. So they can perfectly change, transform their doctrine uh, and delay their eventual uh, objectives to win the hearts and minds. And that's what Al-Qaeda is doing. In, in places like Central Mani today, uh, it's interesting that Al-Qaeda is using local elites. It's a fairly conservative movement, in fact. They are using local elites 
um, as part of their ruling uh, system. France's colonial past also added to the challenges. The new President Macron was not popular due to his blunt criticism of local leadership. His tone, bracing and unsparing, was seen as paternalistic and neo-colonial by some in the local elite. Lots of communication mistakes uh, were made by French authorities. And uh, I think that, uh, uh, in particular, the very paternalistic tone adopted by Macron, but also by his foreign affairs ministries and defense ministries. Some of uh, the declarations uh, which were made by Macron himself, uh, for instance, when he called all the Sahelian head of state to come to France as if they were uh, uh, pupils <laughs> who had uh, to show before uh, their uh, teacher was also very bad perceived, but not only by public opinions, also by uh, political elites all over Africa. Of course, this might not have mattered if the intervention had worked. But at government level, a series of coups in Mali marked failure in the field. And the series of devastating terror attacks in France, the Charlie Hebdo attacks of 2015, the awful mowing down of civilians with a truck in Nice in 2016, and then further attacks in 2018, all these pointed to a sense that the operation wasn't helping France either. The government that the French supported was not legitimate, even though it was elected. And uh, the dividends of peace never came. And of course, what made things worse is that jihadists uh, kept um, expanding their influence. So in uh, late 2019, like multiple bases, military bases occupied by uh, Malian military were attacked and Nigeria military also uh, on the Niger side. Dozens of national soldiers died and immediately the French were accused of uh, not intervening quickly enough to rescue the uh, people. And that's, I think, uh, very much the moment when the divorce between the French intervention and uh, local public opinions widened. Like People would not understand that the uh, national soldiers, the regular soldiers, would be slaughtered uh, in the presence of um, uh, French uh, military. When I was working in Afghanistan, we were told that security in Helmand affected the security on the streets of London. The problem was, this simply wasn't true. There were terror cells in the UK, but they had nothing to do with Afghanistan. And it was a similar picture in France. As I said earlier, it's it's endogenous domestic jihad. They do uh, target Westerners, but Westerners based in the Sahel. 
But the transnational dynamic, and particularly that would eventually reach the shores of Europe or France in particular, like this um, is non-existent at the moment. I'm not saying this will never happen, but uh, since the fall of uh, Mokhtar ben Mokhtar, there's no such thing. Uh, even though in the official discourse, I remember speeches by uh, the former French minister, Jean-Yves Le Drian, arguing that basically in the Sahel and in Syria, uh, I mean, we're fighting the people who perpetrated the attacks uh, against the Bataclan. I mean, that's, that's, that's concretely not true. <laughs> you cannot say that the Sahel is a home of preparation for attacks uh, on the European soul. So why has France, with European allies, been fighting in the Sahel for more than a decade? And based on what we've heard about the failure of this intervention, has their presence actually made things worse? By the end, the local regimes were happy to welcome Russian mercenaries to replace the departing French troops, which doesn't feel like a very strong endorsement. Throughout this period, the human and environmental challenges haven't gone away. As droughts increase, the pressure on local populations intensifies. That's a very much a concern in Brussels. Like, so the French were the first to intervene in 2013. They gradually tried to convince the other EU member states that the Sahel was also their concern. The first reason why France thinks Europe European partners should be concerned is security. Migration is uh, the second element. Um, demographic boom is considered another issue. Uh, global warming. So uh, the Sahel is really much seen as a source of potential troubles for the decades to come for Europe. Paris and Brussels don't seem to have much better idea of how to handle these issues than did, in other contexts, London and Washington. The familiar problems, a lack of local understanding, a political need to demonstrate a security impact on the homeland, and an absence of credible local partners. These things appear just as much here as they did in Afghanistan and Iraq. It's not that these countries are all the same, far from it but it is possible to make the same mistakes. And at the end of the day, the beneficiaries appear to be the far-right politicians in Europe and the cynical opportunists in Moscow. I asked Tarek how we ended up here. If you want to understand radical right or far-right politics today, you really need to go back to 9-11 and to see how in the context or the aftermath of 9-11, of Immigration, especially immigration from um, what you could call the, the Muslim world or Muslims, um, was framed around questions of security. So that wasn't necessarily the case um, in, if you think of the 80s or 1990s, for a long time, immigration was basically purely seen through an economics focus. Most uh, politicians who were concerned with immigration um, were business oriented and it was a question of economics. But then the security focus 
um, that was associated with refugees, immigrants, or just also people who have been living in Europe and the US for generations, that really came with 9-11 and this idea of the Muslim as a terrorist that was then um, part of much political discourse, but also Hollywood and, and, and much cultural production in that regard. This created the, the breeding ground of a different radical right narrative that then uh, affected politics really through the decades that followed. One of the elements of this development seems to be the ability for uh, external powers to weaponize this against Europe. So I'm thinking of the way that Turkey can weaponize migration, but also Russia through its you know, support, sometimes covert, sometimes overt, to radical right parties, is able to kind of play with the, the, the sense of fragility that mainstream politicians have. Is this a sort of feature of radical right politics, or is that just you know, the, the way that, that semi-hostile neighbors would behave? I think it's an interesting security question that basically discourse within Europe has allowed other countries to weaponize immigrants. So European political actors have become so afraid of the radical right that they let this weaponization happen. It's not that per se a million more or less refugees are a security threat um, to, to Europe, not at all. But because political actors in Europe of the mainstream left and right have become so afraid of this idea, oh, more immigrants will strengthen the radical right and we will lose an election because of this, that they make these pacts with the devil, like the, the, the pact with Erdogan that then allowed um, him to pressure the European Union in that direction. Something similar happened at the Belarusian-Polish border. They can only weaponize it because the way European discourse works at the moment. And if uh, mainstream political actors were a little more courageous in this question, um, then this weaponization wouldn't be possible. So I just finally, um, I, I wanted to sort of link this in with, with the kind of major geostrategic changes in Europe's neighborhood, and notably the impact both of climate change and sort of unfolding state failure in the Sahel region. Now, this, this may create more internal migration within that region than it does create migration to Europe, but it gives a sense of the, the kind of instability and chaos that are perfect message tools for the radical right. Um, we seem to have very short memories. We, you know, in 2016, everyone talked about the, the wave of populism with, with Brexit and Trump. And then a few years later, uh, German elections, Macron re-election, Biden election, we, 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 we tell ourselves that the, the, the problem is solved. And, and now we're perhaps feeling less sure again. So wh what's your sort of prognosis of where we might be going in the context of those kind of wider geostrategic changes? What certainly has happened is that elections have become more volatile. Um, parliaments have become more fragmented. Voters have are less attached to political parties than they used to. So this makes any kind of prediction more difficult. What's certainly true is that any any talk about last year, it was the talk, there was a lot of talk about a social democratic decade coming up. And then, of course, if you look at elections this year, record result for, for the Rassemblement National, Italy, um, the, the, the political developments here in the UK, and we haven't really seen that uh, a big uh, left-wing shift, not at all. So um, I don't think that politics happens in waves. What is clear is that especially climate change is going to create um, a political or an, a socioeconomic environment uh, that will make it more difficult for 
the the forces in um, in the middle, the more established forces, to get their message across because this massive pressure um, is always a good breeding ground for anti-establishment and anti-elite movements. Um, and we don't know necessarily what color they're going to, to, to have, what specific ideology, um, but it's going to be a big challenge for these uh, more established, modest, moderate forces um, that is especially created by climate change. If we look through the lens of the Sahel crisis, so much of what we see is about how wealthy countries in the global north, and in this case Europe, have let the fear of insecure borders become Europe's greatest weakness, a sort of geopolitical kryptonite. Alex Clarkson will be familiar to long-time listeners of this podcast and is an academic specialising in Europe's relations with its neighbours. I mean, the first thing you learn when you do research on, on the EU border system is, is pressures on one part of the border very quickly become interconnected with pressures on other parts of the border. And you already mentioned, for example, Russia, the extent to which the Russians, in order to build up leverage and blackmail the Europeans, as well as for a variety of commercial and, and, and political reasons of their own, have become involved with, you know, directly militarily, obviously in Syria, that's in the Levant in the Middle East, but also, you know, directly involved in Libya with mercenaries working together with Europe, United Arab Emirates. Uh, they've become in, in heavily involved in Central African Republic, and of course, this project in Mali, which directly affected France's uh, position. And you also have, don't forget, that Russia is Algeria's main supplier of weapons and has been for a very long time. We also have a whole set of sort of sub-regional developments. For example, Morocco plays a hugely important part in European industry and manufacturing and supply chains. This is not known. Also, agriculture. You know, so they're, they're a big agricultural exporter and producer to Europe as well. So Morocco, you know, if you forget, Morocco actually applied to join the European economic community, European community, I think, in the 1980s. It's one of those little things that's forgotten. And we tend to then box these things off. So we tend to say Libya, Algeria, Morocco, that Tunisia, that's the Maghreb, and then there's the Sahel states to the south. They're all deeply interconnected. Like the Sahara is a shared political and economic and Sahara shared political and economic spaces. So that, for example, you know, this intense instability in Mali has spillover effects on Algeria, has, has definitely, you have the, 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 the war in Libya had spillover effects on Mali. Um, you have uh, this, this constant stream of migration. You have this EU attempt to externalize and push its border system deep into the Sahara and into the Sahel. I mean, the Italian Ministry of Interior of the time in 2017, one of the people who helped, um, Marco Minetti, who helped design the European strategy towards Libya and the Sahel, like his phrase was, Europe's borders begin in the Fazan. My Fazan is in southern Libya. Right. So this is all kind of a hugely neuralgic point. And it's a huge issue for Mediterranean EU states. And through that becomes a huge issue for the EU. Um, opting for Russia as an alternative is a geopolitical disaster because the Russians can't actually, they're both disruptive and reinforce authoritarian regimes. And Wagner and their mercenaries can't even effectively bring these ins uh, insurgencies under control. So they tend to build up expectations, which then collapse because the insurgencies resurge and the Russians don't have the assets or experience to handle it. Alex's last point is key. The Wagner option might have had superficial attractions to certain leaders of Sahel countries. But, as well as committing horrific human rights abuses, there is no suggestion that they have the capability to bring stability to the region. And that was before many of these Russian mercenaries were redeployed to Ukraine, where they needed to make up for the failing Russian regular army. Here's Ivan, 
Well, the Wagner presence definitely adds some a layer of complexity to the situation. What is interesting now is that the Western coalition, so here I'm talking of the French, the EU, possibly the US, are trying to adjust their strategy to the Wagner presence. And if you look at the neighboring countries, so the French have decided to relocate most of their military efforts in Niger and to also have troops ready for intervention on demand by the coastal countries, so that's uh, Togo, Benin, and uh, Cote d'Ivoire. So the neighbors of Mali, which are also uh, threatened by the jihadist um, uh, activity, now somehow face two models that they can choose from, right? Siding with the Western forces, and particularly the French, or bringing in uh, Wagner mercenaries. So everybody is watching what is happening in Mali. It's not that uh, because of Wagner presence in Mali, everybody is now forgetting Mali. And everybody is looking for uh, the future, whether it's going to succeed or fail. Uh, and a country like Burkina Faso, for example, has not decided yet what to do because uh, military power is in place there as well uh, and could side with the Russians. So... Um, the Wagner presence is somehow putting everyone in front of a big question. <laughs> so we have intense military operations going on. Uh, we don't have a political solution to the crisis yet. But there isn't the political headspace for complex international approaches to the Sahel region. We're preoccupied with Ukraine, with the economic challenges that has brought, and with political instability in America. It's like the EU and the UK is kind of part of that, can only ever focus on one crisis at once. We've been spending the whole time discussing Ukraine. There are things building up in North Africa, in Tunisia, under Qais Said, in Algeria, there's Morocco, Lesso, Libya anyway. We need to be able to look at more, more than one crisis at a time. And I think for the EU in particular, Turkey obviously, but that's, you know, but particularly North Africa, and particularly what's happening in Tunisia. Tunisia is as strategically important to the EU as Ukraine is. And that's very, very, very strategically important. And we need to learn to be able to geopolitically, as a great power, which the EU is becoming, and UK as its core partner, which it will become, to both work together to keep our eye on two things at the state time. Um, and we've never really, as Europeans, and this is where the UK again could play a really helpful role, but hasn't, um, uh, to really discuss a partnership of equals. And beyond that, these are all have the, the knockoff and offensive effects in terms of migration flows, in terms of pressure on energy markets, in terms of security and terrorist threats, in terms of also, like, we need to sort of discuss and engage with, critically, with the EU and French role in the region as well, and the Italian role and, the, and Spanish role in the region as well. I mean, they've, they have, a lot of the old neo-colonial patterns of the imperial period were carried over. In so many cases, the critiques of the EU or French or Italian Spanish role and how they've operated in the region, they're also legitimate. Who don't know to learn about the reality of the situation. 
maintenant il y a un Kidal, il y a une personne. At the moment there is no one with Kidal. Everyone has fled across the border. The only people who remain are the ones who are not able to leave. I've been traveling a lot uh, in the region, but I have to uh, confess that I've only been traveling in the capitals because it became almost impossible uh, to travel around remote areas uh, without uh, an escort uh, from national military or in Mali uh, from a UN MINUSMA. What I can say is that Pan-Africanist views Uh, are uh, very active and uh, we can see anti-Western feeling developing very quickly. And uh, this evolution has been uh, very fast, uh, I would say, in the last two years. We are at uh, crossroads and today we can see that external solutions are definitely not able to address the security and political crisis we can see in Sahel and more broadly in West Africa. So, in my view, uh, there is a need to trust Africans to, to find their own solutions. They are definitely able to do so, but we have to be aware that those solutions might not fit uh, our own expectations. Uh, we might have uh, much more uh, conservative uh, Islamist uh, governments. We might have uh, much more junta uh, running countries. But is it really our concern? In the other parts of the world, Western actors do have to adapt themselves to the kind of leadership which have been emerging uh, in any countries. So why are we still trying to uh, shape <laughs> governance in Africa? It is only with the Sahelian lens that the crisis could be addressed. This has been a story about how instability in weak states, exacerbated by the climate crisis, becomes a geopolitically significant issue fueling our politics and culture. In the Sahel, we see countries being brought close to state failure by a changing climate. In the polar regions, we see the opposite. As the world faces a doomsday scenario of catastrophic melting, countries in the polar regions, above all Russia, are set to gain as new maritime routes open up in previously frozen oceans. This is the subject of our next episode. Join me next time for Doomsday Watch, the battle for the high seas. It's the lifeblood of our economy, of our technology, It's the literal weather vane of a changing climate. Every part of our life is shaped by dynamics of the world's oceans. This contest for dominance of the high seas will be a defining feature of geopolitics in the, for the decades to come. If you want to hear the next episode right now, subscribe to Patreon. For early access, 
bonus content and much more besides. Search Patreon Doomsday Watch before it's too late. Doomsday Watch was written and presented by Arthur Snell and produced by Robin Lieburn, with assistant production from me, Jacob Archibald. Theme tune and original music is by Paul Hartnell. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. Doomsday Watch is a Podmasters production. <laughs>